Hey guys, welcome to episode 159 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're enjoying August, but you know what's just around the corner? Spooky season. Love it. So we want to begin by spreading the word early about our listener stories episode, the one that we do each October. Please, if you have any stories involving the paranormal or true crime, please send them to us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. Yes. And also, don't forget the cryptids or anything weird. Yeah, true. So, guys, <laughs> we are all ears. So, if it's if you thought you saw something and you just want to let us know, we are all ears. We are ready. Anything you want to share, we're there. Yeah. Um, all, that includes, like, hometown legends, anything you want we would love to talk about on the podcast. Anything creepy as hell. Yeah. <laughs> so also, please don't forget to help us out by reviewing, following us on social media, or spreading the word. But before we get further into the episode, I just want to provide some trigger warnings for today's episode. Today's episode is going to involve discussions about domestic violence. Okay. Without any further ado, John, do you want to hear something crazy? Of course I do. In the spring of 1999, a beautiful young woman, just shy of her 19th birthday, went missing after leaving her house on the eve of the first day of her full-time job. Both her family and employer knew that she would never miss her first day of work. So when she didn't come home and didn't show up for work, they knew that something was wrong. The investigation into her disappearance would leave a black mark on the reputation of the Akron, Ohio Police Department and mark the beginning of legal battles that would take over a decade to bring justice to Hannah Hill. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Our case today brings us to Akron, Ohio. Akron has been known for many things over the years. The Rubber City, as it's called, because of its long history of tire and rubber manufacturing. For example, it's home to Goodyear Tire, a fact that made Akron a boom city in the early 20th century when its population doubled in 1910. But by the time we reached the city for the case we're going to talk about today, in 1999, the city held on to only a glimpse of its former glory. Like many Midwestern manufacturing cities, Akron was hit hard by high unemployment rates, which, as we know, statistically leads to higher crime rates. In just a few years' time, the city will suffer greatly, and the methamphetamine epidemic that swept the nation will, unfortunately, hit Summit County, the county in which Akron lies. And it's actually Summit County that becomes known as the meth capital of Ohio. But at its roots, and what those who call it home love about the city, is that Akron was, and still is, a blue-collar city, where everyone knows what it means to put in an honest, hard day's work. 18-year-old Hannah Hill lived on the southwest side of town in the Kenmore neighborhood. She lived at home with her mother Kimberly and her father Elza and her older brother Justin. Her father worked as a truck driver and also did other odd jobs, and her mother was a homemaker, dedicating her life to her family. 
They loved Hannah very much. She lived in the basement where she was able to have her privacy and spread out all of her things. Hannah was loved by all of those who knew her well. She had just recently graduated from high school, and she was excited about what the future held for her. During her time in high school, her friends reflected that she was loved by everyone and how much she made everyone smile, something that got her voted Winter Queen during her time in the school. After she graduated from high school, she had enrolled at the career center that had placed her in part-time secretarial work. However, she had, at the time of this case, just recently been promoted to full-time work. To reliably get her to and from work, she had just purchased a used car. And not necessarily that used, it was only three years old. It was a gold 1996 Geo Prism, which she was really proud of. And to decorate it, she put stickers of her name in the car in various places, like around the license plate holder. And her name was like in stickers on the back window. (laughs) That sounds like what a lot of kids would do. I'm telling my kids right away, no stickers, no anything. Nothing to indicate that you're like a teen driver. (laughs) Yeah, that's bad. I actually remember the state of New Jersey was having um, on our license plates, they wanted under not underage drivers but like new drivers to have stickers on their license plates really and then they stopped doing it because then it was indicating to people like the person driving this car is 17 or you know yeah it's almost like calling them out like uh putting yeah. the spotlight on them mm-hmm. <laughs> you might as well have like student driver on the back of the trunk and right. like uh, a big thing that indicates it on the roof <laughs> So that's so eventually that stopped and then they asked us to like all take the stickers off our license plates oh wow yeah so of her social life, her friends said that Hannah and them just did normal things that teenage girls would do that had just graduated from high school. Few of them went to college far away, so most of them all stayed close after high school. On weekdays, they stayed in and watched movies or went shopping, and on the weekends, they went out. Admittedly, Hannah's friends said that they did party with or at the houses of people who were definitely what they described as unsavory characters, but that they thought they were fine because they were on the periphery of it all, right? That party house is never really like home to somebody who has great intentions, but it's a great house to go to to party. I mean, there is always one in every town and every group of friends. We have all been there. Yes. And they knew that at these locations where they were partying or hanging out, that there were drugs and illegal stuff going on. Like I said at the time, you know, they were in the center of this like methamphetamine epidemic and they knew stuff was happening that was illegal, but they weren't necessarily partaking in it except for, you know, the underage drinking. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Hannah had a boyfriend. His name was Brad O'Born. For a very short time, she had lived with him, but then came back to live with her parents in the basement apartment, basically, mainly because it was less expensive and because her and Brad had a bit of a rocky relationship. Hannah was very into Brad. She was young and in love and, as many of us know, that could be blinding at times. Her friends were not fans of her relationship with Brad. They felt like he was controlling of her which was not good in and of itself, but they also knew that it went a step further than that, that Brad was both physically and emotionally abusing Hannah while he was also cheating on her. 
It was a very toxic relationship. And the 18 and 19 year old struggled not knowing what to do to help their friend. You know, because at that time, both in 1999 and at that age, you don't necessarily understand the repercussions of it all. Like your mindset is either one of like, well, this is something that like maybe he'll grow out of or maybe I can change him. That's kind of the thought process. And I feel like kids weren't as educated as they are today regarding abusive relationships, which still happen in large amounts, especially in teen years. But they didn't they weren't equipped with the skills at that age or time to help her deal with that situation. And unfortunately, we know that it takes multiple times in leaving a partner to actually finally be rid of an abusive partner. Yeah. And I mean, from what I've heard already, I mean, it does seem like she's uh, maybe a pe- uh, like a people pleaser, mm-hmm. um, someone that everyone enjoys uh, being around. And I think right. that maybe that could also be like, um, even though she what she exudes is very genuine, right? But maybe she also wants to keep that image up as well. Yes. So even though it's real, it's an image that she wants to keep up. Yeah. So having uh, her toxic boyfriend over there, you know, I'm sure there's – you know, you know, she's, you know, he's drawing on her, you know, her energy, her, right. you know, her charisma, you know. I understand. And I think that that was a big factor. And also she tried to, as much as possible, especially keep the worst parts of their relationship quiet from other people, especially her parents. Her parents weren't fans of Brad O'Born. It was clear that he wasn't right for their daughter. He wasn't leading her down a great path, but they weren't necessarily aware of the abuse that their daughter was suffering at his hands. And, you know, her friends were at a loss because they would fight all the time, but then she would always go back to him and they kind of didn't know what to do. That's sad. Yes. So that brings us to the night of May 19th, 1999. It was a Wednesday night. Hannah had made calls to her girlfriends, one around 9 p.m., and talked to them as she changed into her pajamas and told them that she was just going to stay in for the night. The following day, her plan was to pick up her boyfriend Brad, drive him to work, and then head in for her first day of full-time secretary work at Diebull Incorporated, which she had been really excited for. However, she received two more phone calls that night, something that prompted a change of plans. She changed back into her regular clothes that she had worn to work that day, brown corduroy pants, a silk t-shirt, and she told her mother that she was going to be going out. Kimberly reflected that her daughter's mood had changed from when she had first come home. She said it seemed like something was really bothering Hannah, And she said goodbye to her mother at 10.30 p.m. She said, I love you. I'll see you later. The following morning, the couple noted that their daughter had not come home the night before. It was normal for Hannah to sleep out. She was just about to turn 19. and She was living at home, but she was free to come and go as she pleased because she was basically an adult. But soon she found that Hannah had not shown up for work. And when she checked her daughter's basement apartment, she realized that she hadn't taken things with her that she would normally take with her 
if she was leaving for the night. The company that Hannah was supposed to work for called her mother because they were really shocked that Hannah had not shown up for work that day. It was completely out of character for her to not just not show up for work, but not even call, especially on her first day where she was going to be receiving some extra training. Kimberly spent the day trying to call all of Hannah's friends, asking them if they knew where she was. From there, for Kimberly, her friends called all of their acquaintances, trying to see if anyone in their group and in like the larger group of friends that they hung out with had seen her at all or knew possibly where she was. Hannah kept most of her relationship with Brad hidden, as I said before, from her parents. Even so, they didn't like him. But they did know that Brad was her boyfriend, and she could potentially be with him. So they called him too. Brad had been worried as well, and this is what he vocalized to Hannah's mom. Um, He'd been calling Hannah's friends, asking where she was too, and he had been paging her because, if you remember, she was supposed to drive Brad to work that morning, and she'd never shown up to do so. Okay. Kimberly said when she spoke with him that he was near tears, like he was really emotional about it. He told her something has to be wrong because she would have not driven me to work because she, Hannah was really dead. I mean, many of us have been in this situation, but Brad was kind of like this hothead young kid who was into drugs, had done some drug dealing. Hannah was trying to guide him down the right path because as her friends described her as this romantic that she wanted to get Brad on the right path because she wanted him to be her future. So she would have never not taken him to work because that's what she wanted for him. Right. Because she seems like a rule follower to me. So right off the bat here, we have some question flags because she left the house. So that might be something that she's not normally accustomed to doing. Right. Nobody knows where she is now. And she never came home. And she was seemingly distressed when right. she left. Because you said earlier that she used to stay with Brad and mm-hmm. now she's back with her parents. So if she's not with Brad and she's not at the parents' house, obviously. Or with friends. Or with friends. Where is she? Right. That's scary. So those are the two questions I have right now. Like, what? It, it seems like if all those people don't know, the cops need to be called because that means that there is somebody out in the periphery right. that might not even be friends with her friends that might be involved. I mean, it's got to be somebody in a t- in this town or, I mean, obviously it's random, you know? There's a really strong potential that that's true. And Brad continued to call Hannah multiple times on May 20th because it's the following day. And he was also calling people with her, fr- along with her friends. Like everyone was checking up. Have you heard from Hannah? Had you not... And this is the time, you know, when people did have pagers and you had to call people's house phones. So when you were trying to get in touch with that one person, you might have to call six or seven times and wait for them to get home. Yeah. Oh, my God. Pagers. Yeah. You know, there's a part of me that almost wishes that pagers were still a thing. Like we never. Well, it's like it a text message. For us. Yeah, true. But the page is cool because you don't have to respond right away. Yes. You know, I don't know. The simpler times. <laughs> simpler times. So that evening on May 20th, Hannah's mother, Kimberly, went to the Akron Police Department just after 9 p.m. and filed a missing persons report for her daughter. In the report, there was a description of Hannah and the car that she'd been driving. Although there has never been an official reason 
given as to why the Akron Police Department did not immediately act, we can assume that it is because Hannah was an adult and not a minor, as those missing person cases, especially back in 1999, were handled differently. In addition to that, it did not appear, just from what Kimberly had said to the police officer, that there was foul play involved or suspicious circumstances. In addition to that, in looking at police statistics from 1999, um, the Akron Police Department handled around 200 missing persons cases a month. So they were inundated with um, many reports. So I can understand why they wouldn't make this like a special case, you know, since they deal with it like 200 cases per month. But I just find that if you got that on your table, you have a how old is she? I'm sorry, 18? 18. You have an 18-year-old girl, just graduated high school. Well, she's just about to turn 19, so oh. she's like a year out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. But Still, you're right. You know, Similar. So, you know, nothing adds up. You know, I find that highly suspicious that someone that is completely out of character, they don't know where she is, none of her friends, none of her family, like she just up and vanishes. I feel like that is cause for an investigation of of any kind. I agree. Right, right away, like without having to like go deep into like helicopters or FBI. It's just something that should be looked at. If this is not within her character, you check it out. Yes, I agree. Come on. But like we said, it's 1999. So I know it ages us a little bit. But I mean, we're talking about 24 years ago. We're getting old. Yeah, we are. Ugh. Okay, so before we get any further into the case, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break to talk about the sponsor of today's show, Penrose Hill Burst Leaf. Summers are the best. There is always something going on and something to do, from barbecues and pool parties to weddings and family vacations. But because there is always something to do, our time is stretched pretty thin And something that makes bringing the fun effortless is the First Leaf Wine Club. You will be sure to have the perfect bottle of wine for every occasion. And that's why summer is the perfect time to join the First Leaf Wine Club. I love First Leaf because they make it super easy to get personalized wine boxes delivered on my schedule. Since you get to choose the day your shipment comes in, You can go out and have all of your summer fun without stressing about missing a delivery. To get started with First Leaf, all you have to do is answer some quick questions about your likes and dislikes on their website, and their expert team will select a customized assortment of world-class wines based on your preferences. Personally, I love getting all the rosés and white wines in the summer, but they also have some terrific reds for our amazing autumn days coming up soon and they even have sparkling wines for those special occasions your personalized wine shipments are delivered right to your door so you can kick back and enjoy bottles you'll love all summer long all priced lower than what you'd pay for at wine stores plus every selection is backed by first leaf's 100 percent satisfaction guarantee To make sure you've got great wine when you want it this summer, you've got to try First Leaf. Just head over to tryfirstleaf.com slash TCC to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. Again, go to tryfirstleaf.com slash TCC. That's T-R-Y 
F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash T-C-C to get your first six bottles of wine for under $8 a bottle. Try firstleaf.com slash T-C-C. Okay, let's get back to the show. So earlier that day on May 20th, the day that Hannah's mother reported her missing, one of the residents that lived in Ellet, a neighborhood that is to the east of where Hannah lived, noticed that a car was parked in front of his house at an odd angle. As a resident of the neighborhood for 35 years, he was familiar with all of the cars that would travel down his dead-end road. The car really caught his eye because it was parked in a way that would make it difficult for him to back out. And he didn't know whose car it was, so it would be hard to ask them to move it. The car was a 1996 gold Geo Prism. Oh, no. Okay. I mean, that's interesting. So I wonder why she's there or why she put her car there. Or maybe she didn't. These are all potential (laughs) things that went down. But as the day went on, the residents of Cane Road were talking about the car. You know, they kind of are getting together like neighbors do. And they didn't know to whom the car belonged. The man whose home it was in front of, his name is Jerry, took his dog for a walk past it, sniffed it, but didn't linger. Curious, the man peered through the windows. Inside the car, he saw a pack of marble cigarettes, a Cleveland Indians jacket, a cup from a fast food restaurant, and a set of keys on the console. Weird, he thought. And when he tried to open the car, he found that it was locked. As he walked around the car, he saw something else. A sticker on the back window that read, Hannah. Okay, real quickly, I have a question. Maybe you have the answer to it. In what proximity are we talking about? Like, how far uh, is this car from where Hannah lives? Do you know? Further than walking distance. Okay. So I would say probably a good six to eight miles away. Okay. I know that we are very early on in this case. I just want to point something out, though. If she parked it there, then one would assume that if everything's okay, that she's within that neighborhood, right? Potentially. Okay. But also... If it's somebody that did something to her, let's say, then one would think that if someone put the car there to kind of leave it there and go like go go away from it, that that person that did that probably also isn't too far away from where this car is parked. One would think within walking distance. Okay, so you're saying that either Hannah or the person that did something to her lives within walking distance from where this car is located. Within a mile, I would say. Okay. I think that's a good call. Yeah, it's just what I'm thinking. Just because just because that rules out something as well. Because if it turns out that that's not the case, then that would mean that that would indicate maybe that there's two people involved because then the other person would have another car for that person to go into. Okay. So if not, if it's just one person, then it has to be within range. One person walking distance, further away, two people. I Yeah, I think so. Okay. So the following morning, Jerry woke up and found that the car was still parked outside of his house. He thought it was odd, so he made a phone call to the Akron Police Department to report the abandoned vehicle. That was on Friday, May 22nd. 
a patrolman was sent over to Kane Road, which, oh my God, look, I already did, I did this in the research and I didn't realize. Okay. I did so much research on this case. Like, it was wild and it took a really long time. This is probably one of the longest cases I've ever written. So, <laughs> I guess I forgot that I even did this. Okay. Where her car is located on Kane Road is nine miles from Hannah's house. Okay. So, your theory still stands. Well, your theories. Theories. <laughs> so, after looking around the vehicle... This patrolman informed Jerry that the car belonged to someone from Kenmore. And for now, although the car is parked illegally, all he could do was issue the car a parking ticket. And eventually, if the car had enough tickets, they would be able to tow it. The officer placed the parking ticket in the window of the car. And now don't forget, this is Friday morning. So Hannah Hannah's mother had already reported her missing. So as the missing persons report had not yet been entered into the system of the Akron Police Department, there was no way that that officer, once he wrote the ticket, knew that this would be the car of a missing person because they didn't put the missing persons case into their system yet. That's fair. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure. I guess maybe the next time it would receive a ticket, maybe that would, you know, kind of give them a clue whose car it is because I'm sure they're going to look in the plate. Like, they're going to pull in the plate, you know? Well, here's the problem. Oh. Oh, no. So now you would think that it would pop up once this officer puts in that he gave that car a ticket and once they put in the missing persons report. But the problem was nobody was putting this information into their system. I mean, I'm guessing they should have been. They're supposed to, (laughs) the second they get that report, do a turnover and have it in within 24 hours. Okay, so that's just, so far this is gross mismanagement then. Yes. Because, I mean, if you're thinking, I know we're talking about tickets and missing persons, but it's all within one department. I feel like it should be in the system in some form. It is a large department, but yes, it should have been placed in the system because it also took that patrolman days to put into the system that he had even issued that ticket. Okay. So the mistakes were plentiful in this situation. Jerry was also a little frustrated with the lack of help that the police officer gave him. So being retired and not having much to do, he looked around the car again. And based on the license plate holder, which we now know we really kind of shouldn't do, he could ascertain that the person who owned the car had the last name of Hill. So, like, there was, it was just all over. Like, Hannah was in stickers, but then it was also, like, like the Hill family name was on the license plate holder. Oh, So okay. her name was basically displayed on the outside of the car. This is also frustrating because... This officer knew this was the car of Hannah Hill. Not only that, but I also think it's weird that the car's locked, but the keys are on the dash. There was a lot of things <laughs> that are suspicious about this vehicle. Yeah, that, that's very that strange. That means that it should have probably been entered into the system sooner than later. Yeah, or just followed up on. And the missing persons report, if they would have put out an APB or be on the lookout for Hannah Hill and this car, then it would have been connected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see where this is going. And by the way, good job, Jerry, Mr. Mayor. I know. He is a he is fellow sleuth. The mayor of Kane Road. 
<laughs> so the Akron police still knew nothing of Hannah's car that had been ticketed on Kane Road, but they did begin their official investigation into her disappearance on Saturday, May 22nd. So as you can see, this is 48 hours after the missing persons report had been filed, which is going to become a problem later. The detectives who were assigned the new case were going through the file and beginning to compile a list of people that they would like to speak to, mainly Hannah's family, her boyfriend, Brad Oborn, and the girlfriends that she knew, especially the one girlfriend that she had spoken to on the phone that night. From there, they would branch off if they got additional names. But they soon realized that they wouldn't have to even leave the station to speak to one of the people on their list. The detectives were informed that an irate Brad Oborn was waiting to speak with whoever was working on the missing persons investigation into Hannah Hill. So he went down to the station himself. Oh, I thought it was over the phone. No. Oh, like, so he's physically there he's at the station right now. there. Okay. When he spoke to detectives, he was highly emotional, and he wanted to know why no one was doing anything about his girlfriend having gone missing. Why were there no posters or searches or press conferences? He was very angry at the inaction of the Akron Police Department. And as he was going on and on, the detectives noticed something. They noticed that Brad had scratches all over him. Scratches all over him. Okay. Suspicious. Okay. Okay. I could see at first glance so far this isn't really what you want to do i mean th- hey buddy this is like your like a first the uh, first class ticket to like be on their top of the suspect list right, right now but I, which he already is on the top I'm sure i mean he's the abusive boyfriend of yes. the missing girl i i agree i agree with you though the fact that he's showing a lot of emotionality though with this kind of makes me want to believe that he's not even responsible for this okay. so far i mean it, it's very i think odd to go to the police station and like inquire about you know you know what how, what procedures are you taking what's going on why isn't there that's this that's true yeah but sometimes we do see the perpetrators of the crime ingratiate themselves into the investigation 100% and my response to that now is if I'm the police after he leaves I want to trail him now yeah I want to good... trail him I want to see where he goes what he's doing and I would even want to find out like how would he even get these scratches? Well, they don't. <laughs> okay. They don't do that. They don't do anything. <laughs> they, well, they talk to him. Okay. So the detectives assured him that they had begun the investigation really just that day and that they wanted to start with him. They questioned Brad about his alibi that night. He said he had gone home and he had been with a roommate. And they asked him if they could take pictures of the scratches that were on his body. He removed his shirt and allowed them to take pictures of the scratches. He also consented to being fingerprinted and gave a DNA sample. He said he would do anything he could to have Hannah found. The scratches that were on his arm and one close to his neck area were deep but scabbed over. When they asked about the scratches, Brad said that he had gotten into a big fight with Hannah the day before her disappearance. That had turned into a physical altercation. He admitted that the fight had been about him cheating on Hannah. The scratches, on top of other factors, made Brad really high on the suspect list of the Akron Police Department. And they were really thinking, okay, maybe this is the guy who's 
responsible or somehow involved in her disappearance, but they didn't have anything to hold him on. So once they were done with their questioning of Brad, they had to let him go. Yeah, that's that is actually insane. Um, imagine someone comes in, is doing all this, and then uh, is willing to give you DNA, fingerprints, everything on a silver platter. But that also tells me that he's either not keen on the procedures of how they do DNA analysis or he just truly is not guilty. Innocent. Right? So I, I, I think that when you're dealing with somebody like him, I think that it's hard to try to separate. Like, okay, this dude's bad. But he's is, a hothead. Right. He's abusive. Um, he's toxic. But is he capable – of murder. murder or kidnapping or all of those things, right? Because she's not – no one knows where she is. But I just – I feel like him, I think he's losing control. He's a control freak who That's is abusive. Point. So his uh, – him being a little irate in a police station shows that maybe he's not guilty because it's just that his hand's been forced and he's losing control because right. he always had her under his thumb. He did. So now that she's legit missing, he's like, what the hell? I'm losing my control. Where right. is she? He doesn't know where she is, who she's talking to, what right. she's doing. Is she cheating on me? Is she doing this? Like yeah. he's flipping out. That's a really good point. I never thought of it that so way. So sorry, I, I was kind of in circles, but no, that's that was where you got to was great. Yeah, I'm tr- that's what I was trying to get yeah. to. But I, <laughs> that is crazy though, because I've never seen someone so forthcoming in trying to prove his innocence, but and, and then at the same time and taking just showing up, yeah. yeah, and taking the accountability. That he's an abusive asshole. He was. He was very um, emo- Even though his interview started angry, he ended up getting emotional. And crying with the police and saying that, you know, he was. He he was emotionally, verbally, physically abusive to Hannah. He feels bad about this. He doesn't know where she is. And I think it's a mixture of him losing control and feeling guilty. I think we're on to something. We just need to know if it's guilty about his abuse or yeah. being involved. Right. And also, I still am not taking him off my suspect list. He's still there. Not yet. So for the next few days, a be on the lookout was issued for Hannah and her vehicle. And the detectives assigned to the case continued to question those closest to Hannah. And that ticket that was put on her car was never put into the system. So it was never flagged. And that officer never came forward and said anything, even though Ebola was issued. That's crazy. It's strange. It was not until Tuesday, May 25th. Five days after Mrs. Hill reported her daughter missing, that the Akron Police Department went public with their investigation. During their press conference, which was broadcasted on all major news channels in the city, a representative from the department gave a description of Hannah and her vehicle. Pictures were shown to the audience of both the beautiful girl and the car that she was so proud to have. The residents of Cane Road reacted again. And unfortunately, they were ignored again. One resident called the hotline that appeared on the news after she had seen this segment on Hannah to let the Akron Police Department know that Hannah's car was parked on her street. That was at 6 p.m. She was told to call back the following day. The man who made the initial call four days before, Jerry, called again when he saw the segment on the 11 p.m. rebroadcast 
and he as well was told to call back tomorrow. I wait, I don't understand. You are setting up a hotline for tips. You have multiple people calling about the, the same car on the same street. How do you not even look into this? How do you not even send one officer to go to this car to just see if it matches the bolo now? Because now we're talking, what, four days later now? Mm-hmm. That, well, six. Okay, that's even worse. So this is being mishandled 100%. It's like they're doing things to make it look like they're trying. But behind it, it's nothing. Right. Like a mirage. Well, (laughs) yeah, it seems. It would seem so. What's going on? At 5 a.m. the following day, so now we're on Wednesday the 26th, so this is seven days after her disappearance, another resident called after seeing the segment again the following morning. And she was told that someone would be sent to check it out. But no one would come for another two and a half hours. And the only reason that someone did come was because there was a sixth phone call placed from another resident from Kane Road who was also a city worker. So they were finally able to reach somebody who would come out and take a look at this car. So six phone calls. And finally, someone was dispatched to arrive at the scene. And as soon as this officer arrived at the scene at 7.30 a.m., he realized that it was Hannah's car, and he requested the presence of the Detectives Bureau. That is wild. Yeah. (laughs) So far, I think that's uh, the most craziest detail that so many people were like saying, hey, police, please, hey, come over here. The car's here. In most of our investigations, they're looking for tips. And following through on them. And yeah, and they're like, you know, they want tips here. It's like, oh, you have information? Nah, it's all right. My mailbox is closed. Call tomorrow. (laughs) Call tomorrow. Like, what is happening? So many detectives arrived at the scene, including the new detectives who would be working on Hannah's case. The residents of the street poured out and talked amongst themselves as they watched the detectives finally descend upon the car that they had been calling about. The vehicle was given a once-over by the lead investigator, and the resident saw the man open the trunk and then close it. Time passed, and it seemed that there was just as much whispering among the detectives as there were amongst the residents. After some time had passed, another van pulled up to the scene. A crime scene unit had been called in. And as they approached the car and opened the trunk for a second time, The detectives yelled at everyone to go inside. And that was when it hit them. She was in there. Her body had been in the trunk the whole time. Are you serious? Yeah. So we found her body? In the trunk. And they had been calling. Oh, man. So we're talking six? For five days. Well, they'd been calling for five days. The first call came in, remember, on Friday. Five days, it's just sitting there. Well, like the, technically, the evidence, the since body. her disappearance, it's been seven. But they've been getting phone calls about it for five days. I'm speechless. That's that's insane. 
I know. Because you got to think, first day, okay, we can write it off. Uh, I mean, it's still kind of negligent, but fine, we'll give them that. But then all those other days after that, when they already put the bolo through, the missing person reports in, all the details of what the car looks like, what she looks like, there's no excuse for this. Agreed. Wow. The residents had been calling to tell the police, and they had been ignored. It seemed that the parking violation ticket on the front windshield mocked the police the entire time they were working the scene. A call for help to the public, but when they tried, it was ignored. This was a blunder, and it wasn't good for the Akron Police Department. And it was even worse for the case of Hannah Hill. Media outlets caught on to these mistakes quickly, and they went to interview residents of the road. And one woman stated that she was shocked that the police would allow a body to go undiscovered for so long. She said that someone was dragging their feet. Someone could have come and found her last week. The people of Akron were rightfully shocked and angered by the incident. In the end, the mayor would write letters of apology to the residents of Kane Road that had called, and three people from the call center had been suspended. But after that, things went quiet, and the public was redirected to other parts of the investigation. And... Boy, did they have a lot to distract the public with because so many things happened in rapid succession after the discovery of Hannah's body. But first, let's go back to the discovery. Hannah had been found in the trunk, naked from the waist down. She was still wearing her bra and shirt, but they had been pulled up, exposing her breasts. It was evident that she had been badly beaten. She had bruises on her back and all over her face. Her eyes and nose were blackened, and her skin had been broken in places from the severe beating. After the scene had been processed and pictured with her body inside, Hannah's body was removed and brought in for an autopsy, as the trunk was still processed and searched again. The medical examiner's findings told the story of the brutal fate that Hannah had met the night that she left her home. Hannah had been badly beaten. The bridge of her nose had been bruised and a cut was present between her eyebrows. Her eyes were blackened and she had other tiny cuts throughout her face. Her back had also her back also had significant bruising. Her final cause of death was listed as asphyxiation by manual compression. Someone had strangled her to death with their bare hands. In addition to that, the medical examiner also determined that Hannah had had sex shortly before her death. It would be difficult to determine if this had been a rape or sexual assault due to the fact that her body was left in a trunk for a week where temperatures averaged around 71 degrees. And I checked the weather between... um, the like dates so that was the average temperature some days it was higher some days it was a little lower and according to experts between 70 and 100 degrees are the conditions in which a body decomposes the fastest i was gonna say so decom probably happened quicker than they would have liked right so well it's gonna affect any kind of like dna evidence or the determination of a rape wow man in addition to that There was also a white residue that had been found on her lip, and there was a bite mark found on her arm. 
Her toxicology report indicated that she had been intoxicated at the time of her death. To save face from the embarrassment of finding Hannah's body so late, the Akron police went all in with the investigation of her murder. Now, this is just a side note here, but the Akron police had been up Schitt's Creek without a paddle for a while. There had been a lot of stuff going on. To name them, a deputy chief had pled guilty to stealing money from the World Series of Golf, which I didn't even really know was a thing. A captain had murdered his wife and the commander of the vice squad resigned because of what the Akron Beacon called a call girl scandal. And on top of that, the current chief of police at the time was under scrutiny because there were allegations that he had battered his wife. And now this. So as I said, the Akron Police Department was trying to save face. And because of that, they went all in and all available officers were assigned to the case of Hannah Hill. The pressure was on and they needed to solve it quickly. And by the end of the day, they would have a suspect arrested. Okay. I mean, that's that's interesting. You know, it, just like any other profession, right? How do you have clear focus, like laser focus on what, you know, what your scope of work is, what you're responsible for and all these things when your top of your department or top of anything is, uh, corrupt. is corrupt? It literally is a trickle down. And not to say that the whole department is corrupt, but just saying that if the if the top is corrupt, right, no one's doing their job efficiently and no one's checking. Right. So this is exactly what we have going on here. Like that is insane to me that you have all this happen and now you can't even find out what's going on because the body has decomped. Right. So there's been like kind of a climate of, I don't want to use the word corruption, but carelessness. Well, everything that should be taken care of is not being taken it's care of. It's not a tight ship. This is not protect and serve. This is just just going through the motions pretty much. Show up to work. Show up to work. <laughs> Get your paycheck and leave. So the first thing they wanted to take a look at was the scene of the body. And the scene itself can be looked at in two ways, meaning where Hannah was discovered. So her trunk. First, you could go the route of sexual assault. That she had been brutalized, raped, strangled, and then posed in a sexually suggestive way afterwards. Or it could be seen as a last act of humiliation. Hannah had been posed with her legs open, naked from the waist down, and she was left exposed. So had the killer's last act been to humiliate her even in death? And, you know, like, it's like the sexual assault could go one way. The humiliation part could go another. A str- not a stranger, but someone they didn't know yet, the sexual assault. And was Brad O'Born maybe mad at her and wanted to humiliate her? We- it could go both two ways. Um, if I'm being honest, there's a third way. Go for it. We're, we could be looking at somebody who is on the outside of her friend group, maybe someone that has made advances towards her in the past. Okay. And she, maybe she had denied because she knew how crazy Brad would get. Um, that's true. You know, that's a possibility. I think the biggest thing now is I would want to know who attends these parties at the party house, quote-unquote party house, and where this party house is. That's so funny you say that because that's what they do next. (laughs) Well, that's just, I feel like... And those are wonderful questions, and trust me, they will come up. We need to know this. You're going to know. All right, cool. 
As they spoke with Hannah's friends, more and more of a vivid picture of her life was painted. She was a young woman who was warm, welcoming, and fun, and to know her was to love her. But Hannah, like many of us do, despite being beautiful, smart, kind, found her self-worth wrapped up in someone who was not worthy of her love or generosity. Her friends revealed that Hannah had a bad relationship with Brad. Because remember, at this point, they don't know the whole story about her relationship with Brad. She hated that he would cheat on her. And when the couple fought, things would often get physical. Without saying it, without maybe knowing it, because as I said before, 1999 was very different from today, Hannah's friends described her relationship as being both physically and emotionally abusive. Like they didn't use those words because I don't think they knew that that's what it was. They said that Brad was controlling and it was getting worse and worse. And they thought that the couple might be breaking up soon because like Hannah's patience and love for Brad was stretching very thin because he was it was getting out of hand and he was getting also involved in drug use again. Brad, who was already high on their suspect list because of the scratches, was now even higher. Had the fight been the night of the murder and not the day before? Had he hit Hannah as he had done previously, but this time the rage took over and he hit her a little too hard and murdered her? We've covered cases involving domestic violence before, and we've sadly seen the same scenario play out numerous times, whether it's the first time that the person is physically abusive or the hundredth, it can result in death. And so oftentimes, sadly, does. The police were thinking if the medical examiner had said she had recently had sex, um, maybe when she rushed out of her house that night, it was to talk to Brad to make up with him. But then maybe the couple had another fight after they had had sex. And they were just thinking, was Hannah trying really hard to fit Brad into this dream fairy tale that she had? And this was unfortunately what happened. In looking into Brad, because they want to kind of get his backstory, they find out that Brad was a high school dropout and he was earning extra cash in addition to his job by selling drugs. He had abused Hannah in the past. He had scratches on his body. He'd already shown his aggressive side to the police. He's a known drug dealer. So as you can imagine, they want to talk to Brad Oborn again. Yeah, I mean, I have questions for Brad, too. I I mean, I, I do. I think that it's so easy at first glance to just be like, no, this is the guy like that. He, he fits every category here, every checkbox that you could possibly have. He checks it. Right. But the only thing that makes me think no is the fact that you mentioned her body in the car, in the trunk. Right. And how it was displayed as a form of humiliation. And let's say that that's true. My the, the thing that makes me think that it's not Brad is even though he's crazy and toxic, like I said before, and, and abusive, and that's not to take away what he has done to her, which is horrible. But let's just say if it's not love, he's still protective. And if he's protective, he is not going to let anyone, even himself, let her lay like that in that car, in that trunk. And have anyone see her like that. Correct. Yeah. 
He's not going to humiliate what he protects, even if it's toxic. Yeah, warped. And warped. Yeah. You know? Like, I just don't think that he probably did have a fight with her. He probably, that's why he's all scratched up, you know? And then that sucks, too, because if you go to, like, like do uh, some forensics underneath her nails, could there still be stuff from him in there, which would suck because it would indicate that he did do it. But let's just say he didn't. I don't think he would humiliate her like that. Okay. And even in death, you know? With her dying and everything. I just don't think. That he would do that. I don't think he would. Okay. All right. So this time when police bring in Brad, they're really hard on him. The last time he came in, remember, he went down to the station, demanded to know what was being done. They had kind of just let him talk. And he got emotional and said how guilty he was over having treated Hannah the way that he did and that he just wanted her back so he could change. That is what they all say. But now they were not just letting him go on and on. They were being very aggressive with him now. And they were hammering him with questions. Questions about him being a drug dealer, him having cheated on Hannah, how and why he was abusing her. And this made it all pretty obvious that they thought it was Brad. Brad, who, as we know, has a bad temper, was angry with this line of questioning. But again, he was cooperative, as he had been the first time. He told the police that he would let them know anything they wanted to know. And he would do anything possible to help them find who had done this to Hannah and why. Again, they had nothing to hold him on, so they were done with the questioning. Um, They do give him, under the same questioning, they give him a polygraph test, and he does pass the polygraph test. They let Brad leave with a warning that he's not to leave the area because he may be pulled back in for questioning at any time. Okay. So on that same day, the police knew they had to look everywhere. So in speaking to Hannah's parents again, something struck a chord with the detective about Hannah leaving the house. She had been all prepared to stay in for the night. That's what she had told her girlfriend, Jennifer, who she had called on the phone. But then... There were three more calls placed afterwards. So who had she called to change that? So they go through the phone records of the Hill residence and they see the four phone calls that were dialed and received that night. One call had been to her girlfriend, Jennifer. Two had been to Brad. And then a fourth call was placed to a friend of hers named Denny Ross. So investigators found this odd because in speaking to Hannah's friends, they had given them a list of people that they had all called and that they'd said they haven't heard from Hannah. And Denny Ross had been telling Hannah's friend Jennifer for an entire week that he didn't talk to her or see her. But who's Denny Ross? We'll find out. Okay. That's a great question. So they want to speak to Denny Ross. Because why would he lie about talking to not talking to Hannah on the night of her disappearance? So they at 723, roughly 12 hours after they find Hannah's body, they go to Denny's three bedroom apartment at 1185 and a half Canton Road, which was located a mile and a half from where Hannah's car had been found on Cane Road. So you're telling me it's walking distance? It's walking distance. (laughs) Okay. And now, just Hmm. to give you some background here, 
Hannah and her friends had been introduced to Denny through Brad. Denny's three-bedroom apartment, which was on the other side of Akron from where Hannah lived, was considered to be the party spot. Oh, man. Okay, we're getting somewhere here. Yes, it's, so now, it's weird so now, wait. how you painted this picture already. <laughs> wait, hold on. So I, I need something here. I, there's something else I need to know. So You want validation? I, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, wanna, I, need, I need another piece to this real quick. Okay. So hold on. So now, Denny Ross. Correct. He was friends with Brad. Friends with Brad and Hannah. Not, not I don't want to say close, but his house was the party spot. So right. everyone went there to party. So everyone was like friends with Denny because so, like, he they was were the both... host. Okay. But like what I'm saying is they did they like ever exchange drugs or like were they ever like because like was one. The... Oh, what, Brad and Denny, did they have like drug dealing? Yeah. Is um, that where they got each like drugs from? Like, I don't from each know. Other? I can't speak on oh, that. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out like how the drugs would get there if, uh, you know, I'm sure in these parties it would have to either Oh, you're come saying from, it's like Brad, his connection. Like is Brad, yes. Yeah. Is Brad Denny's connection? I I'm don't sure, know. Okay. I don't. That I do not know. All right. That's okay. You don't, you can't know everything. I can't know everything. <laughs> I don't know who Denny's connect is. Okay. So Hannah, like I said, had been introduced to Denny through Brad Denny's three-bedroom apartment on the other side of Akron was the place to go for people that were in their teens, early 20s in Akron. Um, The way that Hannah's friends would later describe it to detectives and in interviews with the media was Denny's three-bedroom apartment on the second floor of kind of a building was where you went to party. Anything went there. Like, whatever you wanted to do at Denny's apartment, you were allowed to do. Do drugs, drink, you know, stay the night, have sex, whatever you... It was like the den. It was the sin house. It was the sin house. <laughs> and a lot of people were over there all the time. There were fights. There was drugs. There was... You know. Okay. Yeah. So anything bad, it's going on there. Correct. Gotcha. Now, I don't want to make it sound like... Super nefarious because so many people went. Um, but there were, like Hannah's friends said, like there was a seedy side of it where like dark things could happen. But that Hannah and her friends would attend to like drink and have somewhere to go. Right. Have some fun. They were on the periphery of what could have been a darker side to this house. Got it. So it was true that Denny Ross was no stranger to the Akron Police Department. Back in February of that year, Ross had been arrested for possession of cocaine. He had actually sold $525 worth of cocaine to a police informant, who was actually his ex-girlfriend. Wait, what? <laughs> I, it's a, I know. It's wild. Okay. So, two days before Hannah had gone missing, on May 17th, he had been sentenced to two years probation for trafficking said cocaine, which is a fifth degree felony. Now, to be fair, um, well, I don't want to be fair. I don't want to paint him as a, as like somebody who has never gotten in trouble before, because we're going to get into that a little bit later. But he had nothing on his police record so far. When he gets arrested for the cocaine sentenced for it, he had never been arrested before. Or sentenced to anything before. Okay. But we find out later that he had uh, committed a burglary in January and will get caught for it later. Gotcha. 
Okay, so technically he has been doing illegal things. I don't want to paint him as a choir boy, but that's the first thing on his record. So that's why he was sentenced as lightly as he was for, for the trafficking. the trafficking, okay. Correct. And he also comes from a semi-wealthy family. So they had money to have a good defense attorney when he does get arrested for that. And it seems as if, um, according to the Beacon, again, that the only recorded job that Denny necessarily has was a pizza delivery man in the summer of 98. So I think that for a while, you know, I think his parents were supporting him. But I think that after his drug charge happened and his father helped him with his legal fees, he was, as he put it and his attorneys put it, trying to turn over a new leaf and for the most part it seemed like that was happening he was having fewer parties he tried not to associate himself with the same people that were involved with the cocaine incident and he was also paying now $300 a month in child support because he had a five-month-old son and his father was allowing him to work um, with in the bit in the business that he owned so he was basically now working for his dad paying child support he was trying to be on the up and up because you're on probation now for two years so you kind of have to do the right thing yeah but you know what in the end he's still being held by the hand by his dad uh yes and that's why he probably doesn't give a shit at all uh, about everything that he's been doing wrong because even though he has received quote-unquote punishment he hasn't hit rock bottom yet where he f- should change you know what i'm saying yeah he's still he's still feeling like he could do whatever he wants to do or he could just, all he has to do is dial it back a little bit because he knows that mom and dad are there supporting him yeah and i think that that's disgusting you know it's like i know that's your kid but like at some point they got to grow up especially when he has a kid of his own very well said so that's all i'm gonna I say about that Well, Jennifer Edwards, Hannah's friend, would later tell detectives that she spoke to Denny Ross at least five times since Hannah had disappeared, and he never indicated that he had spoken to or saw Hannah that night. And the police had been under the same impression, which is why they were at his apartment now at base roughly 7.30 that night. So that leads us back to where we started, the police showing up at 7.30. When Denny answered the door, he had one male friend over. We'll get into that male friend later. He was also wearing a cast on his arm. He would say later that it was for a badly broken hand that he had sustained during a fist fight with another friend. Now, we know that this is something that he had on his arm before the disappearance of Hannah Hill, Because when he showed up for court on May 17th, he had the cast already. Okay, so it's not like we could say that it... uh, Okay. Right. Denny admitted to the police that he had been lying to Hannah's friends, that he had actually spoken to her on the phone, and that Hannah had come to see him on the night that she disappeared. So now he's admitting it. They asked him when this was, and he said that she had come over between 10.30 and 11 p.m., He went on to say, under questioning, of course, that she had been upset about her relationship with Brad. She said that not only had Brad cheated on her, but he was constantly trying to control the things she did. That he was allowed to do whatever he wanted, but he was possessive of her. Detectives asked Denny what Hannah had meant by possessive. 
had she elaborated. And he said that she meant that Brad was wanting to know where she was at and wouldn't let her go anywhere with her friends or anything like that. In the tape recorded questioning, Denny also said that Hannah had been mad at Brad because he had stolen her beer. She also said that he was acting differently, meaning that Brad was, because he was on drugs again, starting to change. The detective did not question Denny further about any of the statements made about Brad. He moved on. It is also important to note here that it'll come up later that Denny was not read his Miranda rights. However, it's also important to note here that Denny's lawyer was present for this conversation. I know. Weird. So when detectives showed up at Denny's door at 7.30 p.m., he said to them, I'll have you come in, but I'm going to call my attorney and I won't start answering questions until my attorney gets here. So detectives are thinking like, okay, you're making yourself look suspicious that you won't even talk to us about him. And this is the first time they're questioning him about Hannah Hill. Like we could just be curious asking questions and you want your attorney present. Though I find that strange. Mm -hmm. Let's just try to, Let's d- dive into that a little bit. The reason for that most likely is because of his past where he needed counsel right. to get him out of other charges or to bring them down to lesser charges. So I think that he is scared that because he's on probation, something could happen. So that's probably why he's being proactive instead of waiting. I understand that. And that's what he says is that he was nervous uh, and that's why he called his attorney over. Though weird. Weird. There's a reason for it based on past events. Correct. And I'm sure he was told by his attorney, now that you're on probation, if the police ever want to talk to you, call me. Correct. Probably what happened. You don't want to get jammed up or whatever. Yeah. Or you did it. I don't know. Or you did it. Or I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, for sure. Just throwing but it out there. I just wanted to throw it out there that that's a possibility of his reason. Correct. And, you know, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. We always say when police are there, you should probably have a lawyer present or not talk to them unless you have a lawyer present. But then when someone calls a lawyer, we're like, that's weird. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just kind of is what it is. Sure. Originally, Denny had said that Hannah was supposed to have come over with her friend Jen, but she had been alone when she got to the apartment. He admitted that at some point in the visit, it had become physical, meaning that he and Hannah began to kiss and stuff. Okay, kiss and stuff. Yeah, like they were messing around and stuff. Gotcha. He did not go into detail about what that meant, but he was asked if he had had sex with Hannah. And to that question, he said no. He then said that she left his apartment at around 1 a.m. because she said she was tired and she needed some sleep. She told him that she was either going to go back to her house or she was going to go to Brad's house. I don't. Okay. It's an interesting story. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot we can kind of take from that. Okay. Um, Either her relationship with Brad really kind of was deteriorating and she was seeking comfort in this outside person and maybe it did turn physical, but I don't think her knowing Brad's temper would have been physical with someone who she knew it would have created a lot of tension with, especially if this was a house she wanted to continue going to 
and Brad also attended. It, it seems like a messy situation. And I also don't think she would say, I know I just like messed around with you, but I'm now I'm going to go to my boyfriend's house who could potentially get really mad at me for doing something like that. And, and, and have a lot of questions as to where you were. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're like, why are you showing up at 1 a.m. with just your clothes? Like, I think the whole make out and stuff more. It sounds more to me like, oh, I don't know, a sexual Murder advance. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that like, I mean, it, it seems like I don't think she'd want this crazy, insane love triangle uh, drama filled BS that she'd have to deal with if she did this. But like, I do also see a girl who was desperate to make her relationship work with Brad, seek out the advice or counsel of someone who is a friend and is living a lifestyle similar to that of Brad's. I see so maybe saying. that's the reason why she did go to Denny's house. We just don't know what happened once she got there. Right. So the detectives asked Denny if there was anyone that he thought that he sh- they should look into. And Denny replied right away, Brad. When asked why he thought Brad would do something like this, he said, I don't know, maybe jealousy or fear that she was seeing somebody else. And to be honest, Brad did get into a fight with a man named Ray Warders the day of Hannah's disappearance over Hannah because Brad thought that this kid was like coming on to Hannah. And Denny went on to say that he recalled many occasions where he would have, meaning Brad, he would have Hannah basically under control. She couldn't go anywhere. She could not talk to her friends. If she got out of line, he would smack her and beat her up. That's what Denny said about Brad and why they should look into him. The detective basically said to him that he knew this more or less, that he said that Brad and Hannah's relationship had been described as abusive. On the interview tape, the detective almost wondered out loud if there was any way for Brad to have known that Hannah was at Denny's apartment that night. And Denny said that it was his understanding that Hannah had talked to Brad before she came over, which we know she did call Brad twice from her home phone. Denny said that Brad, the whole time that Hannah was over his house, was paging her to call him back. After this, the interview ended and the detectives left the apartment of Denny Ross. But they wouldn't be gone for long. Now, this is the part of the case that people often question. How did this happen? How did Brad go from being the top suspect that the police had to the bottom of the list? For no apparent reason, or for no reason that has been made public, Brad was no longer a suspect. They had believed everything he said in those two interviews. Now, the police may have had their reasons for dropping Brad as a suspect, but those reasons are never really shared. A hundred percent. They just believed from what we heard from investigators later on about this case is that they just truly didn't believe that Brad did it, that they believed his emotions were genuine. They don't think they thought that he was abusive, that he was a terrible boyfriend, but they didn't think that he was capable of murder. Right. And it's actually funny because that's exactly how I feel right now. Listen to the story. Right. Like for the first time, that is kind of what I'm getting. 
yes, he was a terrible person, treated his girlfriend like absolute crap, totally disrespectful, a scumbag of a guy, but could it be somebody else? You know, like, and, and that's the thing, the emotionality of it. Right. That's what really has me, like, feeling the same way as them. And that is how they felt. And the investigation completely flipped. So now, no longer Brad, boom, it's on Denny. The detectives woke up a judge in the middle of the night and requested that he sign a search warrant for the apartment of Denny Ross. He did. And at 3 a.m., less than seven hours after their previous interview with Denny Ross, police and crime scene investigators descended upon his apartment after meeting at a Krispy Kreme donut shop half a mile away and coming up with a strategy on how, in the middle of the night, they were going to conduct their search. The thought behind getting the warrant so quickly was that the detectives feared that Denny, after being questioned by them, if he was guilty of anything, would try to possibly get rid of evidence. So they wanted to have the search warrant signed before the arrival of the garbage men. Okay, so now the following account is important. And I'm getting this information directly from, and I put it in the sourcing information because it's incredible, the eight-part series done on this case um, by Keith McKnight for the Akron Beacon Journal. It's just, it's phenomenal. So it stated that two officers were walking up the outside stairway that led up to Denny's apartment when they were just about two-thirds of the way up the stairs they were stopped by a raccoon that got frightened by them and jumped off the stairs. And it made the officers jump too. They were like, oh my, you know, you get surprised by an animal in the middle of the night. A little scary. So they quickly quieted themselves because the whole point, this was supposed to be a stealth mission, right? Right. And they're like getting distracted by Rocket Raccoon. So they are being quiet and they're listening like, did the people in the apartment hear? They didn't hear anything. So now they're walking up the stairs and they're at the top of the stairs. And according to them, they heard another noise in the back of the apartment and it sounded like something hitting the ground. And when they looked through the glass window of the door, they saw Denny Ross in the living room. Huh. Okay. Okay, just keep that in the back of your mind. Gotcha. There had been a girl with him in the apartment, but little is said about her in police records, and she would not not be asked to testify later on, which I think is odd. The detective made notes about the entire search. He stated that the apartment was a comfortable temperature, and it was cold outside. The nights were still cold, And that night, he noted that the temperatures were 47 degrees. This will all be important later. About five minutes into the search, Denny asked him to close the window in the southeast corner of the living room because it was getting cold. He asked him to do it because while they're conducting a search, you're not allowed to touch anything in the house. So um, the detective went and shut the window. A few minutes later, an officer who had been tasked with guarding the 
trash outside of the apartment building, because obviously it would later be seized, decided to take a look around the building and see if anything else had been discarded. It was then that he saw in the rear side of the building, the south side, that an open trash bag was found in the brush, and it was about a foot and a half away from the foundation and directly under the window, which the detective had just closed inside. So had the officers going up the stairs saw Denny drop this garbage bag, is that what they heard fall? I got you. Wow, okay. Okay. In this bag of garbage outside of the apartment window, the detective made a shocking discovery. Inside were a pair of pants, the same brown corduroy pants Hannah's mother had described in the missing persons report. The pants had um, feces in them, and there was also a purse, underwear, and shoes all belonging to Hannah Hill. I mean, that's, oh, I feel like, all the evidence that we need. Of Like, why would that be there if she wasn't there and you didn't hurt her? Yes. Kill her. These were the rest of the clothes that Hannah had been wearing the night she was missing. And they weren't found with her body. Right. Yep. I mean, this is insane. Wow. But why would he keep it for so long? I mean, that is a little weird. I don't know. Especially with, like, feces in them. I mean, was he just so, like, I don't know, like, 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 could did he not find like a good opportunity to get rid of it quicker? Maybe. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he just felt like if I do it now, they'll know. Like, I don't know. Oh, I understand. Yeah. In addition to the garbage bag found outside of Denny Ross's apartment, investigators found what appeared to be spots of blood throughout the apartment. It was on a lot of things, the shades and the wall in particular. There were also holes found in the drywall. But of course, it was the garbage bag outside that had sealed the deal for detectives. And 20 hours after the controversial discovery of Hannah Hill's body, Denny Ross had been arrested for her murder. All right, good. We're getting somewhere, I think. I think. This is wild. This is crazy. I know. The following day, in a press conference... The soft-spoken parents of Hannah Hill praised the police for catching her killer so quickly, something which did change the trajectory of the news stories involving Hannah and the Akron Police Department. Next, I want to tell you about someone named Ronald Hupp. Now, Hupp was very different from Denny Ross. He did not come from a family that had money. He was a high school dropout he was working odd jobs to make it by. And Hupp had been the friend that was over Denny's house when police first went over to his apartment to talk to him. Remember I said he had a male friend over? Oh, right. Yep. Ronald had been upset at the arrival of police because according to him, and this is maybe just shit luck, he had been over Denny's house in February when he had been arrested for the cocaine. And he was brought in for questioning, extensive questioning about that situation. And afterwards, he was like, well, I'm not hanging out with you anymore because, like, that was traumatizing. And then the first time he goes and hangs out with Denny Ross again, boom, the police come over and start questioning him about a murder. That's that's probably your sign that uh, you need to not be around this guy. You need to get new friends. <laughs> At all. <laughs> yeah. So when the police later questioned him, 
Hupp said that Denny did not seem upset about the fact that he had been questioned, but he was nervous that the police would see that he had beer on his back deck because not only is Denny Ross on probation, but he's underage. So he asked Hupp to cover it up, which he did. But something interesting happened in the time between Denny Ross's arrest and the subsequent trial. I always tell you the whole story, so we have to take this little side quest. It's a journey. Okay, okay? I'm ready. It's weird because this part of the story is highly relevant and also not relevant at all. But I think it speaks volumes about the desperation to solve this case. Okay. okay? So Hupp, after he left Denny's house, where Denny had been questioned by the police with his lawyer present, and the same day as the search, he chose to marry his 16-year-old girlfriend. What? Yes. Okay. So I know we're talking 24 years ago, but that's still young. You know what I mean? So maybe he married her for other reasons. This, I don't know, again, side quest series, okay? Two days after Denny's arrest, Hupp approached the Akron police and told them that he didn't think Denny capable of murder. And he also didn't think that Denny was dumb enough to leave the victim's clothes in his house for a week, especially once they found the body. So that's all well and good. But then the Akron police are contacted by a neighboring police force, the Springfield Police which is technically where Denny's apartment is in Springfield Township. And they do this as a courtesy because they know about the Hannah Hill investigation. And they say, we're going to arrest Ronald Hupp and Denny Ross for a burglary that was committed in January of 1999. So five months before the disappearance of Hannah Hill. So obviously... Denny cannot be arrested because he's already in jail. The charges just get added on to the five charges he's already facing. Okay. Hupp, when brought in, was questioned about the Hannah Hill case. But he claimed, while taking a polygraph, that he didn't know anything about it, nor did he believe that Denny did. He passed this polygraph. But his unwillingness to cooperate with the detectives regarding this did not make him happy. At the same time, his wife, Kim, his 16-year-old wife, comes forward and she implicates him in the murder of Hannah Hill. She says that she and Hupp were over Denny Ross's house that night and that her husband was the one who enticed Hannah Hill to come over and that she witnessed them rape her. Okay, so this is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal. So, and then she said that Hupp threatened to kill her if she ever told. And is that why he married her? Because he thought she could never testify against him? Isn't that actually a thing? It is, but it's complicated and there's a lot of like intricacies to it. And the marriage kind of depends, like the commission of the crime and the marriage, they depend on each other. I'm just saying maybe his thought process was this is a layer of protection. I think he saw it in a movie, in like a mob movie. So on September 7th, 1999, Ronald Hupp is indicted for aggravated murder, rape, kidnapping, tampering with evidence, abuse of a corpse, domestic violence, and two counts of intimidation of a crime victim or witness. 
Wow. Okay. Yes. Wild. So now there are two people that are going to stand trial for the murder of Hannah Hill. But in February of 2000, all of the charges against Hupp go away. What I think happened here was that, you know, they understood that they would need somebody to help them get Denny. And this woman's story, this girl's story, wasn't necessarily making sense, so they wanted more. So Hupp would later explain what happened. While he was in jail, someone approached him and told him that he was basically a jailhouse informant for the prosecution. And he's like, listen, all you have to say is Denny did it. And then all of your problems are going to go away. And Hupp, like I said before, is different than Denny. Denny's got a defense team. This kid doesn't. Like, he's scared that he's going to get the rap for it all. So he, with the help of the informant, um, came up with a statement to give police about Denny's involvement in the murder. The prosecutors were happy with this until a month later that Hupp confessed that he had lied, which, of course, greatly angered them. And unfortunately, it was also brought to them that Hupp's wife had lied. She was mentally ill, and she was actually at her house with her parents the night of the murder of Hannah Hill. Oh, jeez. She lied about the whole thing. Oh, that That's crazy. Okay. And, but I think that this speaks to, like, the larger idea that the prosecution really, truly were nervous about the case that they had against Annie. Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's big too. I mean, like having someone coming come forward and saying that you witnessed what happened there—that's a big deal. And to find out that it's not true now, yeah. And I think that they oof. kind of might have rested on that for a while, right? And then they thought that that confession, mixed with everything else they had, would be a slam dunk case. But once that gets taken away, it's kind of a sh- they're on shaky grounds to prosecute Denny Ross. That's crazy, right? It really is. So that and there's actually more to it. There was like a third person named Greer that was supposedly involved in the um the robbery that took place in January and they thought that Greer might have information on Denny Ross, but days into the trial beginning against Denny Ross, he dies by suicide. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's just, there's a lot going on surrounding this kind of like side story thing. So that leads us to the trial. And this, my love, is far from over. Oh, okay. Okay. The way that you're looking at me, it, it, I feel like I'm about to be angry. <laughs> there's, yes. I don't know why. But <laughs> so Denny's father assembled for him what was nicknamed the million dollar defense because of the cost of the team of lawyers that he would have that were working very hard to prove that the prosecution had a lot of reasonable doubt in their case. So this case happened in October of 2000. And the way that I'm going to lay out the evidence um, for you is I'm going to tell you what the prosecution was trying to prove and what the beliefs of the defense team were. The prosecution had a lot of evidence against Jenny Ross. On the underwear that had been found in the bag outside of his apartment, underwear that had been Hannah's, 
had a semen stain found near the elastic. So his semen was found on her underwear. The So the semen that was found on her underwear was a match for Denny Ross. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. No, it's okay. The bite mark that Hannah had on her arm was also a match for Denny's teeth. Creep. So he bit her arm. Weird. Yeah. Additionally, the prosecution claimed that the white substance that had been found on her mouth was the same substance that the hospital used to create casts. Oh, okay. Because, yep, because of his arm, because of his hand. So, like, his cast must have hit her in the face. Yeah, he used it as a, 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 almost as if it was a weapon. Yeah. The defense argued that this was all a rush to judgment by the police force a police force that was desperate to find the killer because of the mistakes that they made early in the investigation. They really were hitting home with the detectives on cross-examination about how quickly they went from Denny's interview to search and arrest him and also why they hadn't considered Brad Oborn more of a suspect. He was an abusive boyfriend. I mean, it sounds just like a defense team. I mean, to yeah. put the blame on somebody else. I mean, I understand. In this case, you could you could make the argument, I guess. But right. there's way too much now pointing it at, at uh, Denny Ross. Exactly. Way too much now. So upon cross-examination, the detective did admit that they never tested the fast food drink that was found in Hannah's car or checked out leads that maybe somebody leaving the adult bookstore across from Denny's may have been the culprit. Which I think is just, like, so ridiculous. Like, that's like saying, oh, because someone likes porn, they saw an attractive woman and then just raped and murdered her. Like, that's, like, ridiculous statement. It's, it's, re- it's like, it's, overreaching. It's the defense team trying to create reasonable doubt. Like, why didn't you follow this lead or that lead? Or why, you know, like, why would why was it a rush to arrest our client 20 hours after body the discovery of the body? That's the thought process. But it it is a reach. And the detective also admitted that all of the blood that had been found in Denny's apartment, none of it was Hannah's. Some of it was Denny's, but they were like, it was a gross party house. Like people were fighting. Some people would bleed. There was, it was gross. So that's what the blood was in the apartment. But I think it's also safe to say that like, there wasn't necessarily a lot of blood involved in this murder. She was strangled. She had some cuts on her face, but those are just cuts that happen because as someone's like punching you and you're trying to move away, it creates tension in the skin and the skin pulls and rips. Yes. So it's that wouldn't necessarily make you be bleeding profusely. So in addition to that, there were no hairs or fibers of... Hannah's found in Denny's house or Denny found in Hannah's car, which he would have had to have driven at some point. Another point made on cross-examination was the white substance on Hannah's mouth. So the chemist that the prosecution called to the stand to explain that that hospital used that substance to make their cast, the same hospital Denny went to, also admitted that the interior of the car trunk was made of the same material. So like it's okay. like he basically said it's a very common material that's used. So it could have been from somewhere else. So again, it is kind of creating reasonable doubt. I mean it is, but like I mean it is weird that it's just on her face. And and white. 
and white. Like if yeah. it was from, I understand it's the same composite material or whatever, but you wouldn't get that on her face like that, just being in the trunk. Correct. It's especially because it's white. <laughs> right. So then there was the testimony and cross examination of the officers that heard the bag drop and the man that found it. It seemed convincing, but the defense attorney asked them so many theoretical questions that would create reasonable doubt. Why would he hang on to her clothes if he disposed of the body? Why wouldn't he just put it in the car? The officers had no answers, but the detectives did say that the evidence in the bag was not cold. And remember, it was 47 degrees that night. Okay. So the bag had to have been just dropped. I see what you're saying. Yeah, like where, but my question is though, like where could he have been keeping that? Well, in his apartment and then the detectives came to, like, I guess theoretically what the police are saying is that he had the evidence there. He was going to take out the garbage. Maybe he didn't necessarily want to be seen walking down the stairs with the garbage. So he drops it out his window to then go place in the. Okay. In the bin. I see what you're saying. The defense team is saying it was planted by the police. Of course. I mean, I guess, I mean, listen, I don't know. I'm sure we've had cases or there are have been cases where that could have taken place, especially yeah. if there's been a lot of reported incidents within the police department. Right. Um, I but just, I don't know. in this case, after, you know, like sitting with this case for a few weeks, I know that the police were desperate to solve it. But I don't think that they would have the wherewithal to think, let's keep evidence in this trunk and plant it somewhere. Plus, once they got that trunk and they probably were doing forensics on it, that would have been something that would have been documented and housed Correct. somewhere. So many people, in order for them to have taken this evidence from the trunk and kept it, so many people would be involved in this cover-up because... When the people arrived, the detectives arrived at the scene, it wasn't just two detectives that were working on the case. It was over 10 detectives. The detectives' yeah. bureau showed up. Then the cr- then they closed the trunk. Remember, he opened it and closed it. Correct. Then the crime scene came. So there would have been so many people present that would have to be in on this conspiracy. Yeah, right. That's like saying... We never landed on the moon, and then you're getting everybody Don't get involved. Into that one, yeah. yeah, that's like getting everybody involved. Uh, that says that you know to keep them quiet. It's impossible. You're going to keep every single person yeah. quiet that's involved here. I know, and that would mean that the entire department would be lying, right? And I know that there would have been at least one whistleblower within it. At least, not to say a large amount of people couldn't have gone with something like this, but. Out of the amount of people that were to have been involved, there would be one person who would be the whistleblower eventually because this case goes on and on and on. Okay? Yeah. And I know that it's weird to think, why would he keep the clothes? It doesn't make sense. But it also doesn't make sense that he would murder her. Like, we can't rationalize what he was thinking. We don't know. We don't know what he was intending to do with that stuff. Yeah, I think, like, we can't just focus in on these little pieces when there has been other things that confirm that he has he's had inappropriate right why uh, else would yeah. he his bite mark be on her arm right it that's just, the bigger piece of it exactly like we're focusing focusing on these little things it makes no sense right and we might never have the answers to them but there are things that we do have answers to correct 
So also the defense team made the argument to the detective that it would be hard for a man in a cast to get her body down a flight of stairs or into the car. The prosecution, once they rested their case, hoped that the jury would look into more of the semen evidence, the bite mark, the bag of garbage, the fact that Denny had lied about seeing her, and the fact that he had been the last person to see her, convinced them that he was the murderer. And what could only be interpreted as grandstanding, when the prosecution rested its case, like, so the prosecution gave all of their witnesses, the defense team cross-examined them all, and now it's time for the defense to call their witnesses. Instead of calling any witnesses, Denny Ross's lawyer stands up and says, we rest too. We have no witnesses. And the whole courtroom audibly gasped. They were like, what? That's weird. Because he said, I have no witnesses because they haven't proved their case. I see. I see. So it's they were trying to play a little mind game oh, there. Oh, they yeah. were. Okay. They definitely were. Um, they said there's a lack of evidence, so we don't need to provide any witnesses. They were confident in their cross-examination and disproving everyone who the prosecution called to the stand. So the defense rested. There were closing arguments, and this jury really did have a difficult decision to make. And I'll tell you why. This is going to get legal here. Denny Ross had been charged with aggravated murder because the prosecution claimed that it had been during the commission of the rape that the murder took place. Aggravated murder is a capital crime. So in order to find him guilty of aggravated murder, they must also say that the rape occurred. That was difficult to do in this case. The medical examiner had said that there was circumstantial evidence to say that she had been raped, meaning intercourse had been had prior to her death, her body was left naked, and in a sexually suggestive way. There was semen in her underwear, but because of the time that her body was left in the car, any like semen sample in her body was degraded so it couldn't be tested. What about her toxicology report? Were they would could they have been able to get anything with that even though decomp was well, a that little advanced? Well, that wouldn't prove or be circumstantial in the rape aspect of it. But I feel like it, I mean listen, I'm not really I'm not really good with this stuff. This is like completely out of my wheelhouse. I don't even know. But I'm just saying I'm I don't want to make something of the nothing. The level wasn't that high okay. for it to have been like he was trying to incapacitate her. That's what I'm trying to get at. Okay. okay. I knew where you were going. Okay, cool. So during the cross-examination, Denny Ross's lawyer asked the medical examiner whether or not she could give an opinion as to whether or not she thought the victim had been raped. And she said that she could not. In his closing arguments, the prosecuting lawyer addressed this. He said, the medical examiner cannot offer an opinion because rape is not a medical term. It's a legal one. It is entirely possible for it to look like someone had had intercourse physically. But if you ask them what they felt or what happened to them, they would say they were raped. Sometimes rape doesn't look like fighting and screaming or manifest in tearing. So the jury of five men and seven women 
were given the following instructions by the judge. They would have to find that Denny Ross was guilty of raping Hannah Hill in order to find him guilty of aggravated murder. Or they could find him guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter if they didn't believe that he raped her. It's the difference between a capital crime and 11 years. Well, that's <laughs> that's a big deal, though. It is. It's a huge deal. So as the jury deliberated, they found that they were split. Some thought the garbage bag made him guilty, while others speculated that he wouldn't have kept those clothes because they would have implicated him, um, especially after the case went public. So they were kind of split on the garbage bag. But one thing they were very clear on was that they did not believe that there was enough evidence to physically prove that Denny Ross had raped Hannah Hill that night. During their lunch break, one male juror said to a female juror that he didn't know what all the fuss was about, that Denny was guilty because Brad had taken a polygraph test and passed it. But this surprised the female juror because that detail had not been told to them during trial, which meant that that juror had violated the judge's order to not read or watch anything about the case during the trial. The information about Brad's polygraph had been in the news, like the TV and also in newspaper. So the female juror told the jury foreman about this interaction. I mean, that's kind of a good thing in a way. You have to. Yeah, I mean. It's, It's the law. Right. After she told the foreman, the deliberation continued. She didn't know if the foreman told the judge, but she felt as if she had done her due diligence at that point, and now it was up to the foreman. They all decided and signed a paper that he was not guilty of aggravated murder because the rape was too hard to prove. They decided to break before debating whether or not he was guilty of manslaughter. When they got back from their break, the bailiff came in and told them that they were no longer allowed to talk about the case and that they had to wait for the judge to come in. While the jurors were waiting, the judge was meeting with lawyers from both sides. She told them that she had received a note from a foreman alerting her to the fact that a juror had information about a polygraph test and that it had been talked about in court and he wanted to know if the juror could be released so they could have a, quote, impartial and fair jury. See, it, it, I see it's, it sucks because you want a fair trial, but then at the same time, if you think you got your guy, they're going to use this as, as their way of finding him an out. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, no. So the problem with this is that the jury pool had technically already been tainted with an outside piece of information. Three people knew about it, and maybe more, because that one male juror might have told other people. The prosecutor's opinion was that even though the tainting of this jury fell in his favor, like that it proved more that Denny did it, he said, we have to declare a mistrial because the jury pool has been tainted. And that's a fair point. Very fair. Yeah. But the defense thought otherwise. They felt confident about how the trial went and the fact that they wouldn't be able to prove him guilty of the rape so they did not want a mistrial denny ross's lawyers wanted this jury to continue 
which makes sense because they had already found him not guilty of the aggravated murder. Right. Denny Ross was then called into open court where the judge asked him if he wanted a mistrial declared, and he answered no. She asked him if he understood that this meant that the jury was most likely thinking that he was guilty based on evidence that did not come out during his trial. And he said, yes, I understand. The judge, in what legal experts call a quick decision, rendered a verdict about the trial in 10 minutes. So they say it was like really quick. The judge stated that this jury cannot render a fair and impartial verdict in accordance with the law. So she was declaring a mistrial. She went into the jury room and explained the situation and excused them all without prejudice. So mistrial. Denny's defense team went to work immediately. After talking to the jurors, they discovered that they had already signed the paper that stated that he was not guilty of aggravated murder. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, you're allowed to do that. Oh, okay. okay. You're allowed to talk to a jury very, after. Very bad with this. I it's don't okay. know this side of it too much, but okay. It's a complicated side. So they decided to fight what had happened. They argued that because the judge had not weighed out all of her options before declaring a mistrial, that she had not met the Fifth Amendment standard for a mistrial. This is known as something called manifest necessity. A judge should only declare a mistrial if it is the only thing left to do. And they argued that she should have considered more options, more than a 10-minute deliberation, because the jury had already signed a not guilty charge, which they argued was a legally binding document. A judge ruled in February of 2002 that the judge in the original trial had not met the standard for manifest necessity and acted prematurely. Not that the mistrial ruling was incorrect, but that she had done it too quickly. And because the ruling had not met the standard, it meant that Denny Ross could not face retrial because that would violate double jeopardy. He could never be tried again for the murder of Hannah Hill. And that's where we are with this? No. Oh, oh, you give me a heart attack. (laughs) Don't do that to me. Sorry. Okay, okay. So this Summit County prosecutor never gave up here. They knew that this was the wrong call, and they know they had the right man, so they kept at it. One mistake within a jury pool was not going to prevent a family from getting justice. For years, they tried and tried to appeal the case, and as they did, the ripple effects of Hannah's death were felt by many. Brad, in his guilt, fell deeper into drugs and did time for bank robbery. Kim Hill, Hannah's mother, became a shell of her former self. But finally, she got what she hoped for. A retrial. Good. A decade later. Wow. The Ohio Supreme Court ruled that Denny Ross could be retried for the murder of Hannah Hill. Still took 10 years, though. Yes. Wow. 13 years after Hannah's death, there was a second trial. Her mother was there every day, in the back, silently watching on as this trial was a doozy. The prosecution had worked their case hard against Jenny Ross. They would call 70 witnesses to the stand, 
A majority of them were there to testify to the things Denny had said and done after his first trial. Because imagine what a man does when he thinks he can't be retried for a murder that he might have committed. He slips up. Oh, honey. (laughs) Wait. All right. It's hard to sum up such a lengthy trial, but I'm going to give you the highlights. There was one witness who said that before Hannah's murder, that Denny had made a comment to him about Hannah. He said, I'm going to F Hannah. Okay. And remember you said somebody who maybe would have tried to come on to her and she said no to? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It is a little interesting. And the party house. Because, you know, all those kind of things do happen there. They do, and it's sad. You know, it's, it's very sad that it happens, but it does. Right. And and that was what the prosecution was setting up, that Hannah was someone that he wanted but was not maybe able to have. Then a man testified that years after the mistrial that Denny had told him that he had been choking someone while having sex and she ended up dying. First of all, what kind of, think about the kind of not scenario good, yeah. that this has to be just, you know, casually just talking about yeah, one time, I, you know, I mean, that's insane. And, and I wonder how that other person reacted. Like, should like, I oh, cool, leave dude. now? Yeah, cool, dude. Yeah. Should I get going now? Like, what the hell? We what? can't hang out with Denny anymore. That's like, a little what? weird, dude. So then the prosecution put on the stand a woman who I don't think they should have put on the stand because it really made them look ridiculous. It was an unbelievable and bizarre testimony she was a stripper who was a regular at denny's house like party house she said she denied it for a long time but she was present the night of the murders and that hannah and denny went into his room to mess around and then she heard screaming but she like left because she didn't want to get involved in it and it was just seemed very unbelievable and during the cross-examination they like proved that she had lied many times during pre-trial hearings and it just made the prosecution look desperate when I don't think that they were. I see. So I think it hurt them. I think they were trying to throw everything at the wall and see what stuck when they didn't have to do that. I see what you're saying. It was just unfortunate they brought her on. So this is the big one. Back in the first trial, one of the hardest things for the jury to get past was the fact that there wasn't any of Denny's DNA found in the car. But when they went back to test the evidence for the trial, they found a lot more DNA because technology was a lot different. They were also able to find additional blood droplets on Hannah's shirt and her pants. Now, remember, her shirt was in the car and her pants were in the bag. The blood on her shirt and pants were a match for Denny. So they finally had DNA in the car that matched Denny's. Right, so that whole theory of, like, the cops planting the bag kind of goes out the window a little bit. Right. The defense had claimed that they were just kids messing around. And that's how semen ended up on, like, the elastic of her underwear. So now the prosecution was saying, well, when kids are just messing around, is there normally an exchanging of blood on someone's pants and shirt? Right. (laughs) It seemed as if maybe... This man in a cast was having difficulties moving Hannah's body, committing the murder, and that's how blood ended up on her shirt and pants. Right. 
And it's not like it's impossible um, to to use your hand. I mean, you could still make it work. Yeah, it was. He could still use his arm for the right. most part, and he could have essentially also just. She had really bad bruising on her back, um, more than just like the blood settling there. So it could have been just her being her? Thro- or thrown down the stairs. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And of course, there was also all the other DNA. The bite mark, the semen in the underwear, and the pathologist was able to testify that semen had been found inside Hannah's body, but it couldn't be tested because it had degraded so much. Okay. But but it was presently found, though. And remember, he said they didn't have sex. Right. Well, that's impossible. But then you can't say it because we couldn't test the semen, so we don't know if it was her, his. Uh, his, but, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's... One could assume. Then there was the most intense witness, and this had the courtroom silent. A woman got on the stand and told a terrifying story. She met Denny Ross at a bar in 2004. She invited him back to her house, where she said he violently attacked her. He choked her from behind and was squeezing down on her neck as hard as he could as he was raping her during the attack she fell in and out of consciousness she was scared that she was going to die as she cried on the stand she explained that she eventually pretended to be dead so he would stop and he did after he believed her to be dead he left her where she was to be found sexually battered and choked to death But she survived him. And it was a very emotional testimony. And the jury was not allowed to know this. But I'll tell you that Denny Ross was currently in prison for her assault and attempted murder. That is wild, man. So see, I mean, now we know that he did it again. He did it again. He did it again. He did it again. The prosecution could not have made it more clear. Denny had an M.O. This showed that he was more than capable and that he had no remorse because he went out and tried to do the same thing again to someone else. And another witness for the prosecution was Brad Oborn. Okay. They knew that the defense would try to make it out like Brad had been the killer and the police never focused on him. So they decided to be proactive and allow their narrative of Brad to hit the jury first, which is smart. On the stand, Brad admitted that after Hannah's death, he became a heroin addict and that he had done time in jail. He then went on to talk about Hannah and the guilt that he felt at being her abuser and the one that had introduced her to Denny in the first place. Crying on the stand, he admitted to both verbally and physically abusing her. He talked about the fight that they had had the day before she went missing and how much guilt he felt. He said he didn't do it, but he blamed himself because if he had never brought her down the path that he did, he believed she would still be alive. And it also came out during the questioning that Hannah's parents, although didn't like him, never believed that he was the murderer. They always were very clear that they never thought Brad did it. And that's big. Mm -hmm. 
And like I said, the cross-examination of this witnesses were, you know, trying to discredit them. I think the most successful they were in discrediting, discrediting any of the witnesses was the woman who was the stripper that claimed she was there. They very easily showed that she had lied multiple times before. Um, and with Brad, because of course this is going to be their biggest cross-examination, because now here they have a chance to cross-examine the person that they're trying to tell the jury that they think might have done it to create reasonable doubt for their client. What they do is they confront Brad with Hannah's diary that was found in her room. And in Hannah's diary, she would admit from time to time that she would go like going over to Denny's. But in the diary, it always says like going to Denny's with either Brad or some of her girlfriends. The diary does admit that most nights ended in her and Brad fighting, her crying, but it showed that she loved him. She on every day she had a bee with a heart around it and that there were times that he got upset. She also wrote in one entry, and this is what the defense was trying to prove, that Brad had read her diary and it hurt her that he read it. And in the diary, it made mention of her going to Denny's house. And they were trying to claim that Brad read the diary and got upset because she was going to Denny's house. But I think that that's also a bit of a stretch because in the diary, it says she was going with other people. Right. It wasn't like her just going alone every time, yep. which then would have furthered his jealousy and maybe Correct. getting angry. So Right. So I don't really necessarily think that that was a slam dunk for the defense in them doing it. But they did continue to try and explain how the police botched the investigation, which we know to a certain extent they did do. And it left the jury, unfortunately, with a lot of questions that they wish they had answers to. Like, so this was brought up during the second trial. The The police never did a luminol test. They never looked at records of Hannah's pager. Like, there were just simple things that they should have done, but that they didn't. And when the jury is doing their deliberation, they wanted to take their time and in they've been interviewed afterwards and they said they were at first divided about Denny's guilt they wanted to believe some of the witnesses the prosecution put on but like it was the investigation that hurt their case in the in the long run but they did all 100% believe the woman that was on the stand that said she had been sexually assaulted by Denny in 2004 the jury also agreed that they did not think that it was Brad who killed her. So even the jury, the second jury, believed it wasn't Brad. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because there's been a lot. I mean, at this point, everything points to Denny. It does. I think it does. And it took them three days to deliberate. But on October 5th, 2012, the jury reached their verdict. Denny was found guilty of all five counts. Good. Two counts of murder, felonious assault, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. It was Hannah's father's 73rd birthday. That's really sad, but I'm really glad that they yeah. got some kind of justice and some closure. Right. He would later say that 
him sitting there hearing that verdict with his wife next to him was the best birthday he ever had. Oh, that poor guy. Poor family. I know. Imagine having to wait that long. And I always tell you this, you know, even though they did have to wait a long time, at least they got it. There's people out there that just never get it and they have to live with that. But I'm glad here in this situation, you know. That woman's assault would have never happened if they could have got him the first time. That the, yeah. the jury pool screwed it up. But I, but that you're the, right. He would have been out in eleven years. Yeah, and and, and the right. thing is here too, though, is that uh, the prosecutors really hit that home run with that with that witness because I think that also made them realize that he had no remorse for what he did. Right. And that if he did, if if he really did do that to that woman that was being uh, that was in court, then most likely he did it here. I agree because the first trial, I believe the ever evidence, everything, it was kind of on shaky grounds. The second trial was a home run, and they wanted to make sure that right. they got him this time. Right. So for the jury, what convinced them was the blood evidence on the clothes. It put him at the scene of the car, and there's no excuse for that. Denny Ross would be sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. He was already serving 25 years for the rape and attempted murder of the woman who he attacked in 2004. He will be 67 before he will be eligible for parole. Well, I hope that he never sees parole. And that's only if he gets parole. Right. Hannah Hill finally received justice. Although there are a lot of people out there, and I'll tell you this, that claim that the case still leaves a lot of questions. This one screams to me that this guy did it. Especially because he goes and does it again in 2004. Right. And I know that the police investigation might not have been 100% good. Definitely not. But that doesn't mean that they got the wrong person. And, of course, the Akron Police Department had to answer for a lot of things that happened, and they had to change a lot of protocols, and they have been put to the fire since, and they thankfully learned from the mistakes of this case and have improved their police force. And, you know, and that's, and that's, the, uh, that's the goal, I mean, isn't it? I mean, I know, like, it sucks that people are, are hurt in the process or, or killed in the process or whatever, but... Advancements are are made to stop future incidents from even happening or just getting better at pursuing leads and and figuring things out. So it's an unfortunate thing that happens when it's not run correctly because bad things happen. But at least we have some justice for the family and at least uh, there's better procedures moving forward. I agree. Crazy one. I know. That was a crazy case. Yeah, wow. But before we go, we want to say thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. And if you want two extra episodes of True Crime Couple a month, then you can join us at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. So we want to say thank you to Amanda Van, Beth McKenzie, Tracy, Rebecca Calhoun, Justa Torso, Melanie Knights, Sarah M., Sarah Brugman, Kayla Salvato, Fion Kaschke, Troy Didamore, Jay, Macy Stewart, Sarah, Darren Lull, John Johnson, which is a great name, 
<laughs> Joss McCourt upped her pledge. Therese Saunas, Michelle Knights, Mel Loves to Knit, Lacey Clark, Nathan Wilcoxon, Brittany Based, Anne Duran, Courtney Bianca Dryden, Jennifer Coles, Brittany Cooper, Pamela Coborn, Sherry Smith, Alicia Burke, Robin Pittman, Tamika Pettis, Kazra Shaverdi, Sherry Smith, Leslie Bishop, Ellen, April Thompson, Monica Marchese, and Katie Natasha. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.